whether maintaining a hierarchy of sins is itself unbiblical and sinful. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. Partly because I think the question this time on Walk the Earth is particularly easy, I'm going to start off with a quote from Scripture and provide my answer right up front. The more interesting thing to me will not be about the question itself, but about how the answer to the question has played into our search for a new church home. James, chapter 2, the letter of James. My friends, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you must never treat people in different ways according to their outward appearance. Suppose a rich man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes to your meeting, and a poor man in ragged clothes also comes. If you show more respect to the well-dressed man and say to him, Have this best seat here, but say to the poor man, Stand over there or sit here on the floor by my feet. Then you are guilty of creating distinctions among yourselves and of making judgments based on evil motives. Listen, my dear friends, God chose the poor people of this world to be rich in faith and to possess the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you dishonor the poor. Who are the ones who oppress you and drag you before the judges? The rich. They are the ones who speak evil of the good name which has been given to you. You will be doing the right thing if you obey the law of the kingdom, which is found in the scripture. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you treat people according to their outward appearance, you are guilty of sin, and the law condemns you as a lawbreaker. Whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. For the same one who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Even if you do not commit adultery, you have become a lawbreaker if you commit murder. Speak and act as people who will be judged by the law that sets us free. For God will not show mercy when he judges the person who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. The letter of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And it gives us a really clear answer to the question. Yes, it is unbiblical. It is sinful to hold in our hearts any sort of hierarchy of sin. In this letter, James uses two examples from the Ten Commandments, but he could have picked any aspect of the law that he wanted to, particularly since he spends most of the time in this passage comparing the the guidelines, the commandments given to us by Jesus, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself, to the way a hierarchy of sins might most likely be constructed. If you were to visit a church where you could tell just by the first visit or two that a hierarchy of sins was in place, that there were some things which you know, the members of this congregation or perhaps the pastor or some of the laity would view as being you know, the, the big unforgivable, whether that be one of the key social issues that seems to be the source of so much talk in our society today, or any other aspect, it's more likely to come from Old Testament law. 
which is ironic because when James makes a reference, he doesn't cite the book of Leviticus when he's talking about the concept of love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the concept can be found in both places, in the book of Leviticus, and really scattered all over the Gospels in the New Testament. But James is referring to the New Testament. So when you meet someone who says, well, you know, there are sins and there are sins, we're going to forgive our favorite politician for telling a few lies and breaking a few promises. After all, he doesn't perform abortions. That concept, no matter what sort of validity you may find inside it from a human perspective, from God's perspective, is sinful. It is making a, a distinction where God doesn't have a distinction. And in the example that James uses in the letter, where he's talking about the different way we treat people based on how, they, how we approach them when they visit our churches, for example. You know, that, a distinction based on how they dress, or our estimation or understanding of their wealth, well, that's you know, just as sinful, and, and it's the example, again, used in Scripture, to talk about not making a distinction about people based on whether we think they're rich or whether we think they're poor. So let me introduce the concept that I've been trying to follow as we've gone from church to church. And then I want to talk about one particular visit, which may be the, it could be the last visit to a church, at least formally from a Walk the Earth perspective. I may get to this on the next recording of Walk the Earth, whether we're done searching, even after we've found what we think is a new church home. But for now... I want to talk a little bit about the question that I'm asking or the question that I'm trying to get an answer to when I go to visit a church. And it's very simple and it's served me well. And I think I'm going to keep this question with me whenever I encounter myself in interactions with other Christians, including parachurch organizations, uh, meetings where more than one church is represented. It's, to me, it's not just limited to trying to find a church home. And the question goes like this. Which of my neighbors am I not allowed to love? I'll come back to that in just a moment. But first, the most recent visit we've made was to a non-denominational church. And it served the purpose of fulfilling, or almost fulfilling, I think I might have one more to go, in fact, a promise I sort of made to myself to visit the churches of other people who are part of my small group from the church we left behind. Now, if someone's new to the Walk the Earth podcast, when we stopped attending the church that uh, I would describe as having lost its way, we were already having regular bi-weekly small group meetings in my home. The number of attendees varied, bigger than nine or ten on occasion, but usually more like a handful of people. But each one of those other church members, when we left roughly at the same time, but we sort of scattered in different directions. So I made a point to visit every single church that somebody that I was in this small group fellowship had decided to join. Now, I, I may be missing one because I'm not exactly sure whether this family has joined the church they're visiting or whether they're holding out to follow the pastor of the church we left to whatever his next assignment will be. Because when we left the church shortly thereafter, the pastor of the church, who was not the problem at the church we left, went on a leave of absence. So there's been a one-year gap where within the United Methodist Church, that particular pastor has not been assigned to a local church. So I'm not sure if this other family is going to follow him when he does start. In fact, uh, any week now starts his new appointment. I do not intend to do that. Because although I didn't find 
him to be the issue at all. The issue was truly within that congregation, and it was far more serious than any one person, even the pastor, could be accountable for. But all the same, just because that pastor wasn't the issue doesn't necessarily imply that that pastor was somehow obviously the solution either. So I've taken this one-year search, and I'm going to continue to go where it leads me. But one of the places it led me, just about a week or two ago, was to another church, a church that some friends of ours had left and joined right away, and some other friends of ours had you know, left and visited other places, and I think even joined a different church, a non-denominational church, only to come around later and start attending this non-denominational church, where they do intend to join. My visit there kind of bothered me, though, and it bothered me for a couple of reasons that are represented in this passage of the second chapter of James. One of them was strictly a gender concern. The role of women in the church seemed to be somewhat proscribed. And if that's not actually true, if they're much more open to women participating actively in ministry and not just on special women's events, women's Sunday type events, it just wasn't evident. Especially, for example, when at one point during the worship service, as, as the order of worship turned toward communion, the pastor called for seven men to come and help serve communion. And again, whether intentionally or not, it certainly communicated to me as a visitor that a woman would not be welcome to be holding a tray of bread or a, a tray of little containers of grape juice, which seems very odd to me. I find nothing in the Bible that would stop a woman from sharing in the process of serving communion. The bigger issue, though, and it is somewhat related, is that at least three times during that very first visit, people approached me and my wife to ask me, but not her, what I did for a living. Now, the fact that they were inquiring about my career and not my wife's career is consistent with my concern about the gender segregation that I was thought I was witnessing in the worship service. And that's a concern. But in general, it's perhaps concern enough that on a very first visit, where there is no guarantee that there would be a second visit, that the question would turn to things related to my income or my work status, my employment. Was it a question related to trying to decipher whether I was a rich visitor versus a poor visitor? I don't know. And if it was, that's obviously deeply concerning. It's not that that's you know, a question about what you might pledge if you joined a church is a fair question to ask, but not on the very first day. And it seemed inappropriate from that perspective as well, plus the fact that it, the, na the nature of the question being so pointlessly gendered, because my wife has had a career that's longer than mine in the city where we live, because... I've been in the current position I'm in a couple of years less than she's been because I made a job change during the time that we've lived in the city we live in. So the validity of her career to me is unassailable, but it was of no interest to anyone, apparently, in the congregation that we visited. And that may preclude me from making another visit, if not because of the, the gender aspect, but because of my concerns about, well, why would you go into the direction of asking that particular kind of question right away? You see, on this church search, often as not, I've tried to avoid wearing slacks and a dress shirt. I can count maybe only one occasion where I've worn a suit. I've willfully and intentionally gone as often as not in jeans and t-shirt, sometimes in shorts, 
trying to dress as casually as I can based on whatever activities may be happening on a Sunday afternoon because I don't want the way I dress to have any impact on my experience with a church that we're visiting. And I do hope that there's a consistency in the way I'm dressing and grooming and and approaching myself as I prepare to go in and meet a new set of people so that I can gauge one church visit to another with some sense of whether I'm getting the same kind of response and not not doing anything to sort of taint the impression that I'm getting. I'm not overdressing. I'm also not underdressing. I look, yeah, roughly like I might look to go to work on a casual Friday. Now, May the 4th was a Sunday this year, and I did wear a Star Wars shirt. Admiral Akbar on the front of the shirt with his fingers stuck in a Chinese handcuffs sort of trap. And it's a trap joke. Some people got it. Some people didn't. And I, I imagine some people appreciated it more than others as well. But that's probably the most casual I've been. Everything else has been somewhere just slightly more formal than that. In other words, a shirt that's a little bit less, you know, geek logo <laughs> and more golf. But on this particular Sunday when we visited this church, activities later in the day kind of put, pushed me into a direction where I did wear a nicer pair of slacks and nicer dress shoes and a button-down sort of Oxford-type shirt. And you wonder, did that play some role? But it's irrelevant because it shouldn't have. It shouldn't have played a role for the same reason that James covered in the letter that he wrote to the Church Universal. And the two aspects of that letter are important because they come together here with the real topic of this particular episode of Walk the Earth. One of them is, shouldn't treat people differently based on your estimation of their wealth or their prestige. Treat people the same, regardless. And the other is that if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. If you sign yourself up as a follower of Old Testament laws, you don't just get 10 to follow. You get 600 plus to follow. And you don't get to pick and choose which one of them are valid and which one of them aren't. James does not use the term civil and ceremonial law. In fact, you will not find that expression anywhere in the New Testament. And in the letters of Paul, you won't find any concept of it. So it's not like, well, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, Greg, but it's clearly there on every page. I agree with that statement. Not on every page, but it's clearly there in the New Testament. In this case, if anything's clear, Paul is saying that you've got a choice of following Jesus or following the law. And if you choose to follow the law, well, then you've got to follow them all. Meaning that people who pick and choose certain laws that they're going to hold up as being a bigger deal than others if you break them, miss the point. All those others, uh, how many fabrics are woven into the clothes you wear, for example, are in effect if you choose to live your life as if Jesus Christ didn't fulfill the law or has not yet fulfilled the law, has not yet accomplished what he set out to accomplish. His work is in some way or another incomplete. I'm saying this with a degree of sarcasm in my voice because I reject those ideas and I reject them pretty forcefully. I'll get to that perhaps on the 150th Inappropriate Conversations. I've got some plans for something on the 150th episode. That'll probably come September, maybe early October of this year. But in the meantime, as I look to this question on Walk the Earth, let me go back to the thing that I was looking for when I'd visit churches. It's this idea of which one of my neighbors am I not allowed to love? 
Now, the key is finding the right way to ask that question if you're approached by somebody who gives you the opportunity to ask that question. There needs to be a gentle way of putting it out there because if I somewhat confrontationally, uh, when greeted by a pastor or the lay leader of a church, said, I need to know which one of my neighbors I'm not allowed to love if I were to join this church, I'm sure I would quickly get the answer that, well, we, we love everybody and we follow Jesus' command to love everybody. But what I'm looking for is a little bit more subtle than that. And asking the question bluntly is not going to get me where I want to go. It's more about trying to ascertain, perhaps just through observation at first, what the hoops are. What are the stupid human tricks we might make somebody do if they were an IV drug user, if they were a homosexual, if they were an unwed mother, if they were a couple living together, having never bothered to get married, these sort of things, teenage pregnancy, these sort of things. And to me, it's, it's about who can't be loved genuinely, meaning as they are, where they are, or without some demand that they change themselves first, or pretend to not be who they are, or at least on Sunday, between the hours of 9 and 12. What are the stipulations that the congregation might put over somebody if they were in one of these hierarchical sins, these things which are worse than other things. Like, uh, could you not be in the choir? Would you not be allowed to read scripture on a Sunday morning? Would there be some stipulation that you would never be permitted to offer a word of witness? If there was a lay Sunday where two or three people were going to share a small, sort of a short sermonette, would you not be allowed to do so? Because despite the fact that the church might maintain that it loves you, because churches anymore have kind of, in some cases, lost sight of what the word love means, that they, they would tell themselves that they love you, but only if you make certain changes. That the fact that you are living, the way you hear it is the fact that you are living in perpetual sin is the problem. Um, the fact that you're living with somebody out of wedlock, well, that means you can't hold the communion tray. You're, you're not one of the men who might be called up to serve communion in some churches. Or if you've got a, you know, certain problems you're wrestling with, whether it be alcoholism or mental illness or something along those lines. And is there a difference between the way a church might react to a woman who leaves an abusive husband versus how a church might react to the husband for being abusive? Or a man who leaves his wife for a much younger woman? What are all these sort of things where I think as a church we'd have to look at it and say, listen, doors are open for everybody. When we talk about ministry, we're talking about administering. And the administering in this sense is trying to share the love of Jesus Christ, trying to share God's kingdom with others. And you expect to throw open the doors of that sanctuary and have nothing but a stream of sick and desperate and lost people coming in. One of the problems the church universal has today is that the church has to deal with the fact that it really is succeeding in filling its pews, or to the extent that the pews are, are filled, in getting people who are lost and sinful and sick and desperate to come in. The problem is, how, how do you deal with it when they're pretending they're not? And when, if called upon, would either tell you that they are not, lost and desperate and sick and hopeless, or that they are, but they only mean it in a certain 
sins that there's a you know the, the kind of sins that people cop to well you know my biggest sin is you know I, I wrestle with humility really that's your biggest problem that your uh, your your pride perhaps probably is your biggest problem truth be known every now it's like the interview question you get where you know you know, what are what are your biggest weaknesses? The person doing the job interview might ask you, and a lot of the answers you get back in that case is, "Well, I'm too much of a perfectionist," or um, I, "I find that I'm sometimes a little bit too honest," or I, "I work so hard that I sometimes lose sight of the big picture." Whatever the big problem, the the personal defect that's elicited in that job interview is probably going to be something that has a whole lot of, uh, of faint praise, you know, in it. It's it's going to be a huge character trait or compliment of oneself wrapped up in some sort of self-deprecation to make the answer seem like it's appropriate. And you see a lot of that in churches today. People who are pretending that they don't have seething anger issues toward friends or family or co-workers that have not been addressed. Or pretending that they're not dealing with sexual temptation that has the potentiality to rip their primary relationships in two. That's one problem. The other problem is this issue of not really understanding the word love. To me, if you love somebody and they do not feel loved and never have felt loved, there's an issue. Now, it could be a question of adolescence where between parents and children, there will always be times, even with the youngest of children, where the child who wants a cookie and doesn't get a cookie right before dinner would at that moment say they don't feel loved. But if you were to ask the kid, have you ever felt that this parent person loved you? Well, the answer is going to be, well, yes, of course I have, but not right now. And we get this sort of tough love example offered up about the way church treats people, especially in areas where the church would wrap the problem up underneath the bow of what we might call sexual sin. But what I would guess is that the person who is the target of the disapproval over their sexual sins has never felt loved by the church. Meaning that if the church is so ill-equipped to offer its love to those people, that those people have never even been aware of it from a cursory perspective, it's really disingenuous for anyone to say, well, I love homosexuals, but I love them in a tough love kind of way. No. When a parent is denying something to a child, that child has the memory of having in the past been loved. It's not a conditional love where I'll love you when you stop being who you are, or when you start doing a good enough job pretending you're something you're not. I mentioned a moment ago that one of the problems in the church are that a ton of people, maybe the majority, maybe an overwhelming majority in some congregations, are pretending to be something they're not when they're there. They're dressing differently than they dress every other day of the week, for one thing, and do so feeling like that's something that they should be very self-righteously satisfied about, rather than perhaps on some level a little bit concerned about. So it is in that context where you look at this sort of hypocrisy element that I'm asking the question, which one of my neighbors am I not allowed to love? So as I get closer to picking a church, the answer to that question is really crucial. Because I'm holding in my mind, on one hand, what Jesus commanded us to do, what Paul understood about Scripture and the law, and what James reminds us in terms of, hey, the law, in the Old Testament times, the law was the law. You break 
one, you break them all. It almost doesn't make sense to talk about bigger laws and smaller laws because they're all the same. You break one, you break them all. In the sense of what does it mean for us to judge anybody for violating any rule we may have, regardless the standard of morality we, we may find to justify those rules when we know we don't measure up. Again, all of us, recipients of God's grace, that's the Christian worldview is that we are all needfully recipients of God's grace. To segregate out the nature of that grace, to rank the sins in any way whatsoever, profoundly misses the point. And it's a church that I don't feel I want to be actively a part of. There's this undercurrent running through almost every church. And I'm not going to say that it was powerful in the church we left behind, because that really wasn't the issue. The issue was you know, being more beholden to the building and members of the congregation and their own traditions and being willing to be uh, destructive and hateful toward anyone who would stand in the way or threaten those types of things. The desire was for there to almost on some level be the exact same worship service every single week, week after week, in perpetuity, because any change was a bad change. And when that becomes something that people are willing to be, well, hateful over, gossipers, liars, well, then you got a real problem. But still, there was an undercurrent there of this type of hypocrisy I'm describing, because I think you'll find it in almost every church. And to me, the real key is, when you ask the question, which one of my neighbors am I not allowed to love? Who gets the asterisk? The answer to that question has to genuinely be nobody. The doors need to be open to everybody. And what I think the Christian church in America today, to take this beyond just a walk-the-earth perspective, and to offer here at the end a little bit of an inappropriate conversations perspective, one of the real dangers facing the Christian church in America today, where the Southern Baptists are reeling because they're in decline, and the United Methodists are at each other's throats over you know, what to do about gays and lesbians, and all sorts of other issues, we don't have everybody we need worshiping with us. We're not out there side by side and hand in hand doing Christian ministry with everybody we're supposed to be doing ministry with. It's not just the obvious racial divide that's still true in our country and not getting any better anytime soon. Seemingly with every passing Supreme Court ruling, it gets a little worse, not a little better in the sense that there are many, many churches we visited where you won't find a racial minority anywhere in the building. And that's a problem. But it's beyond just the question of race. That's a question we've been dealing with for 100 plus years. What about gays and lesbians? What about unmarried couples? What about anybody else that the church has deprived itself of by telling people that you can't be fully in participation in ministry with us? You may not be allowed to join the church. If you do join the church, you may not be allowed to have communion. If you can join the church and participate in the communion, there's going to be a line somewhere. And I've been looking for those lines very carefully because I think the answer, I think the way forward, I think the way I need to equip myself by going to a church that will help me become stronger and clearer in the calling that I believe that the Lord has placed on me is to be in worship with people who understand that there is no neighbor we're not supposed to love. It's not about being allowed to love. It's being about supposed to love. The second we shut the doors, metaphorically or otherwise, in the face of anybody who wants to come to our church, who wants to participate in our 
congregational activities, who wants to join, who wants to become a member, the day we stand in the way of that and do so under the auspices of somebody being more sinful than somebody else, that expression, more sinful, is the problem. And it's the easy and obvious answer to our question today, whether maintaining a hierarchy of sins is itself unbiblical and sinful. Of course it is. It is because we're not perfect. And a lot of us are holding that first stone and hoping that the same Lord who told us that only those of us without sin can cast that stone will turn his head and we can get away with something. Even as you are led, please join me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, I have hinted in this Walk the Earth podcast that I feel on some level that I have been given a call. I don't believe it's a call to ministry, at least not at this time I don't believe that. But I believe it's a call to make sure that I'm asking questions that don't otherwise get asked. I believe that I've been getting equipped for much of my life, perhaps going all the way back to junior high school, if not earlier, to ask questions like, aren't we supposed to be ministering to everybody? Aren't all of us sinners who fall short of the glory of God? Doesn't that mean that if we've excluded somebody from our fellowship, that our fellowship as a result is inherently weaker? Thank you, Lord, for placing these questions in my heart. And thank you for helping me to remember them as I've gone from church to church. Lord, I thank you that I believe I'm close to having found a place where the answers to those questions line up, line up pretty well. You reminded me, Lord, not long ago, of a conversation that we had in prayer once, where I mentioned that I had friends in Europe who'd expressed how much they would be open to attending worship service where I go to church, because they detect a difference in my demeanor and my approach to people, but they wouldn't dream of stepping foot into a church anywhere within walking distance of their home. Lord, I remember looking around the church I was attending back then and saying, wow, I don't know. I don't know if my church would live up to their image of my church. But Lord, I think you've helped me find a place where I could say, yes, this is genuinely different. This is completely inconsistent with what you typically see or hear from American Christianity. And that makes it even more different from what you typically see or hear or don't see or don't pay attention to in countries like the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. So Lord, I thank you for reminding me of the things I needed me I need to be reminded of. And I thank you for giving me the perspective on these things that I need to have a patience that I don't normally that I don't normally deliver. This, of course, includes being patient not just with people who have lived their life differently than I have, whether in relation to sex or drugs or rock and roll for that matter, Lord, but also patient with those that I might be impatient with because they're more impatient than I am. This is a struggle. Lord, I thank you that you're there with me as I continue to wrestle with how do I interact with those people who would exclude people you love from being in fellowship with you, while at the same time making sure that those people know that you love them. In the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 
What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether the concept of home church is necessary or merely particularism. Thanks for listening.